The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ray Dalio is the founder of the world's biggest hedge fund firm, Bridgewater Associates, which manages $160 billion. Dalio has joined Warren Buffett and Bill Gates pledged, promising to give more than half of his fortune to charitable foundations within his lifetime. Through his Dalio Foundation, he's directed millions of dollars in donations to the David Lynch Foundation, an organization that sponsors and promotes research on transcendental meditation. Also working to make sure Bridgewater survives him, Dalio moved in 2018 to turn Bridgewater into a partnership and give employees more of a stake in the firm. Dalio sat down with David Rubenstein, co-founder of the Carlyle Group and host of the Bloomberg television show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. They discussed what he looks for in an employee, how he's preparing for a possible recession, and whether or not he'd ever take a job in government. You are seen as somebody who has said there might be a chance of a recession at some point. Do you see any chance of a recession in 2019 or 2020? I'm big on principles, right? So I think that it's important to understand how the economic machine works. And so when I'm looking at that, I want to maybe take a few minutes and get into the important things that are uh, pertain to a recession. Because a recession, you know, uh, whether you, it, it's two negative quarters of GDP. And we're going to be hovering, I think, fairly close to that level. And there's a certain variation around it. But the bigger things are um, a combination of the absence of effectiveness of central bank policies. So I hope we can talk about those. Together with the wealth gap, the large wealth gap. So when the next downturn comes, what that will look like socially, politically, and so on. Um, the uh, elections, which is a issue between um, let's say, uh, capitalists and socialists, or the rich and the poor. And then the emergence of China um, and in relationship to the United States. Those four factors are factors uh, that have not existed since the 30s. I think they're unique. And so when we get into the question of the recession, I think it's how that will uh, affect those other things and those things affect it. Uh, in the investment world, your firm was quite known, well known for quite some time before the last recession. It was a very successful firm before. But in the last recession, your firm performed extremely well, maybe better than any, any other major hedge fund. So as I recall, you're up 28% or something like that during the, uh, the worst year. So um, are you anticipating a recession now? And are you changing your investment approaches? Or you're not quite where you were in 2007? In 2007, it was pretty easy, I think, to calculate that there were these debts that were going to come due and that the, there was not an adequate amount of funding. And so that sort of debt crisis was something we anticipated and we were positioned well for. When I go through those calculations, it's not the same. 
In other words, the amount of maturing debt and that whole problem doesn't look the same. It looks more like a gradual squeeze having to do with a, 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 quite a lot of debt of a certain so type. But with that, um, also uh, pension liabilities and uh, health care, okay. particularly um, as that pr produces a greater squeeze. We have large deficits and so on. So, so the amount of promises that we have are large, but they're going to be coming at us at a more gradual pace. And I think that's going to produce a squeeze. I think related to that, what's important is that when you don't have monetary policy, being able to be effective, um, what kind of monetary policy we will have. We will have, more than likely, a lot of debt monetization on fiscal policy, there's no room for additional tax cuts, do you agree, because we already have such a big deficit, so you couldn't really cut taxes any, anymore, or do you not agree with that? I believe that in terms of spending, that probably there will be increases in spending. That probably will not be well-funded. And when you ask about that, I think we have a political question, and that's which is relevant to also the markets. Between now and the elections, uh, we're probably going to have very different policies. But policies may be more of the left and policies more of the right. More extreme policies, okay. greater polarity, and the choice will be greater. And how those choices are made are, is going to be very important to not only the size of the deficits, but the nature of taxation. So I think that, you're, I think that um, when I'm looking at the presidential uh, candidates, what I do is I look at what their policies are, stated policies in terms of um, any of their various policies, and I look at that as a probabilistic basis. So I think when we have to answer that, we can't, um, um, you, you might get after the election, you might get um, taxes raised by, um, uh, on the wealthy, or you have corporations, you can reverse those tax, uh, those tax policies. And you're probably going to get an increase in spending. All right, let's talk for a moment about how you came to be, let's say, one of the most respected commentators on economic and financial policy, which is starting your firm. So you grew up in Long Island? Mm-hmm. And were you from a wealthy family? No, my dad was a jazz musician, very lower middle class family. When you were a young boy, were you interested in the financial world, or what were you most interested in when growing up uh, in Long Island? I got hooked on the markets when I was 12 because I used to caddy and I would take my money and I'd put it in the, in the markets and everybody was chatting about the markets. So, um, How did you do? Well, the first stock I bought, uh, I bought because it was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. <laughs> and I figured I could buy more shares, so if it went up, I'd make more money. That was my okay. strategy. Did it work? And it worked. <laughs> and, and, it worked because this company was about to go broke, and somebody came along and acquired it. Okay. And it, by luckily, it, um, it went up, and I said, this game is easy. And I um, then decided that okay. I would be involved in the markets, and this game is anything but easy. So in high school, were you interested in academics, or were you a good student? No, I hated high school. Did you go to high school? Did you cut classes, <laughs> or what did you do? Uh, I, I did cut classes a fair amount. I right. cut classes to go surfing. Did you have a hard time getting into a good school, college? Uh, yeah, I got into CW Post College on probation. On probation? On probation. Okay, and, but you did well there? I loved college. Okay. <laughs> I, I love college because, well, 
besides mixing the, all the fun that college gives you, it also, um, what I liked is that I could pick the subjects that I was interested in. And I, and so I, I loved college. Right. You must have done recent well because you got into Harvard Business School. Yeah, right? I did. I got, yeah, great grades. When you graduated, what did you do? So in my two years, it's a two-year school. Um, and in my summer, I like to trade commodities. I got into trading commodities. Now, this is now the uh, summer of 72. And um, so nobody ever from Harvard Business School went into commodity division. But I went to Merrill Lynch's commodity division. I said, hey, can you give me a job? The director of commodities in that summer gave me a jo job to help him around. 1973, we have the oil shock. Uh, bear market in stocks, commodities is the hottest thing. And I was hired as director of commodities at Dominic and Dominic, having never done anything in the director of commodities, but I was hired, at, and that's, so that's what I So I you left that eventually, though, to set up your own firm? Yeah, um, so I, uh, that was 73, 74, big bear market in stocks. Uh, Dominic and Dominic essentially went broke. I went to uh, what was Sandy Wiles' firm, CBWO, Hayden Stone at the time. Became Shearson, Hayden Stone, Lehman, and blah, 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 because it did all those mergers. I became in charge of institutional commodities, in other words, hedging of all different things. Right. And that put me with all different uh, futures markets. And then we got into the environment where um, 74, 75, you got into this environment where interest rates, tightness of monetary policy, all of those things were driving right. all the markets. So that got me hooked on those markets. But anyway, I got fired from there because I was a bit rowdy. Did you punch somebody? <laughs> did you punch your some boss in the face or something? Yes, I punched my boss in the face. That's yeah. not a good way to get promoted. That was, but that was, um, it was New Year's Eve. We got drunk on New Year's Eve. And um, Can you punch anyway. somebody other than your boss, or you didn't think of that? <laughs> anyway, he, but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't last long okay, so at you, right, okay, so And you, that's how I started the firm, because uh, the clients what, still wanted to do business What with year them. was that that you started the firm? 1975. So it grew to, from one or two employees to how many? Well, in 1982, it, it was, uh, I, I think there were eight employees. Eight. And you're, at one point... And then I had... A terrible 82 so um, and then it came down to one employee so 1983 or so was just me the countdown has begun this May a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar economic forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Did you have uh, to borrow money from your father? Yeah, so let me tell you about the moment. Um, so 1979-80-81, I calculated that American banks had lent a lot more money to emerging countries than those countries were going to pay back. And I... Uh, anticipated that there would be a debt crisis, and with that, an economic crisis. So that was my thinking. Um, in August 1982, Mexico defaulted on its debt, and a number of countries followed. And so because I said that, um, I got a lot of attention about that. And I thought that was going to be producing uh, a bear market in stocks. And I could not have been wrong, more wrong. 
August 1982 was the exact bottom in the stock market. And I was wrong. And as a result of that, um, well, I, let's take my eight employees, or um, I had to let them go. I lost money for myself. I lost money for, uh, and I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad. It was the most painful, one of the most painful experiences, but it was one of the best experiences that ever happened to me in my life because it, it changed my perspective about decision making. It made, um, it made, gave me the humility that I needed and fear of being wrong in my decisions while I was able to maintain my aggressiveness. So it, it changed my whole approach to decision making. So oh, you paid your father back with equity in Bridgewater or just uh, interest? <laughs> no, with, with, uh, without interest and with a big hug. Okay. So um, from that time on, you began to uh, rely a lot more on arithmetic or algorithms and other kinds of things? Or no, not? no, no. The big ch thing was, and I th this is the, like the biggest message that I think that I would get across that I'm trying to convey in principles and so on, um, is that so many people in their, have opinions in their heads that might be wrong, and they're too attached to them. And if you know how to um, operate with a certain amount of uncertainty and stress test your opinions in a different way, you s get away from your ego, get away from all that, and you can learn a lot about raising your probabilities of being right. So uh, what it made me want to do is find the smartest people I could find who disagreed with me. And then I could have conversations with them um, and only after I found the smartest people that I could find who disagreed with me would I be able to make a decision. In addition, to know how to improve my return to risk ratio by being able to diversify well. To create, and so I wanted all the upside, but I wanted to be able to control the downside. And so I would say uh, a number of lessons that I'd like to you know, sort of pass along. First of all, the value of mistakes, the value of painful mistakes and learning and reflecting on them has been a big, big thing. Finding the smartest people who could work with you, uh, that's what created an idea of meritocracy at Bridgewater. And it's that back and forth uh, in terms of the thoughtful disagreement. And then also raising your probabilities of being right in those ways. So that humility, that fear of being wrong, combined with still the audacity to go for the great results, and how to do that well is really the most important thing I learned. But you now use a lot of computer-related algorithms to help you navigate the market? Is yes. You know, algorithms are what we call them today. Equations is what we used to call them. And so you would write that down. And what I learned is, by being clear, then I could tell how that decision would have worked in the past in all different environments. So it gave me a lot of perspective on making that decision. I could test it through the Great Depression and so on. And then I could find that, if I use that same algorithm, I could take data from and have the computer make decisions in parallel with me. And so, and I, this is what I recommend for everybody. I recommend they write down their principles and then realize that almost any of those principles can then be converted into algorithms. And so right. the computer was making decisions in parallel with me making decisions. That part, type of partnership uh, between me and the computer and then also expressing the algorithms was invaluable, not only in the quality of the decision making, but also the quality of the relationships that I had with the people I worked with. Bridgewater would not be said to be an easy place to work. Is that fair or not? Because That's many fair. 
That's fair. Because many people come and say it's a very intense environment, and some of them don't survive. Those that do presumably are, are adopting your principles. But are people you people love it or hate it? Um, do you have a big attrition rate from young people coming in, or I would say in the first eighteen months, probably about thirty percent. We have protocols, and you have to understand your weaknesses as well as your strengths. And so people coming to that are almost of two types. There are the people who say, um, well, they, I suppose almost all come, that I'm excited about that. And they're excited about that because they said, yes, I would like to know my weaknesses as well as my strengths. And I would like to be able to talk about anything and, and have it thrashed out. Right. And uh, that's who it works for. But it takes getting used to. Because when you're really talking about uh, the strengths, weaknesses, and differences in ideas, our brains have been programmed in a certain way, partially because of genetics and partially right. because of our environments, in which disagreement is thought of as producing a, uh, a fighting type of reaction. Or weaknesses are something that becomes a challenge for people to look at. So that's the essence of what the vice Let's suppose I'm a young college graduate and I want to go to Bridgewater and make money and learn. Uh, what would be the qualities that you would look for in me to make it likely that I would succeed? Do you want somebody that's the first in his class or her class? Do you want somebody that's a student body president, an athlete? What is it that you look for? When I look at people, I look at them in uh, three dimensions of a person. Values, abilities, and skills. Um, most companies hire for skills. Um, I believe it should be the other way around. I look at their values. And a values means, like, what are their motivations? What are the missions? So it, and it, skills is least important. Then you look at abilities. And abilities is the way of thinking. Is somebody a big picture thinker? Is somebody creative? And I want to put together a mix of those right people. And then skills, can you program? Do you know uh, those things? That's uh, important, but it's least important. So what I look for is really character. Character is number one. Um, uh, and um, to be on a mission. And then it applies to the particular job they have. Uh, so when I'm referring to values, I'm referring to, is this a person of good character, number one. Now, over your, let's say, 30 years as an investor at Bridgewater, what is your track? Every year you've made money virtually for your investors? Well, 18 out of the late, last 18 years we've made money for 18 out of the last 18. Yes. That's, that's not too bad. Um, about, uh, is it too late to invest with you? or? <laughs> and who can invest with you? Anybody? Any credit investor? You're not taking no, money? No, no. Our, 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 uh, we're closed to new investments in, in that pure alpha strategy, and our clients are all institu large institutions. Institutions. And you have two basic strategies that you uh, provide investors? That's right. And I think that'll be helpful for people to understand the nature of that. There is a strategic asset allocation mix. What is your best diversified portfolio? If you had no idea what was going to happen, what would you hold? That's what we call our all-weather strategy. It's a portfolio of assets. Um, and then we have what we call our pure alpha strategy. Because there's a separation between alpha and beta. Um, so every, and most investors make the mistake of separating those two and think that they're going to make money in the market. And in the zero-sum game, they're probably going to lose money from making those bets. So there's the strategic asset allocation mix, which is the all-weather 
beta piece. And then there's the alpha. In other words, okay, now I think it's a good time to move this okay. way or that way, and that's the alpha strategy. So um, you're too, too late for friends and family to get into your fund, right? It's, there's no opening. You're not going to open any anytime soon? No. Okay. So an uh, important part of your life has been transcendental meditation. You do this twice a day. When did you start, and why is it so important to you? Um, I started in uh, 1969 or so. Uh, I started because the Beatles uh, did it, and then and I learned about it, and I thought it was. And but I, it's uh, it's an imp it's a very important thing. I would say um, I, I, it's the greatest gift that I think I can give anyone. It gives a combination of an equanimity. Uh, the, uh, you know, a calmness, so no matter what's coming at you, you can approach it with that sort of calmness. It gives one a creativity because it is a process of going, transcending is a process of going into your subconscious mind and relaxing. So it's, um, it's been very helpful. So now you are one of the wealthiest people in the United States, one of the most successful investors. So you now have a fair amount of wealth to give away and you were one of the original signers of the Giving Pledge. Uh, what are the philanthropic interests that are most appealing to you? My interests are, um, I guess I would say, two big interests. I'm really thrilled about ocean exploration. This is something that's a big deal for me. But we, we have donated to many different things. Um, and then an important thing for my wife and for me has to do with the education of uh, what are called disengaged and disconnected uh, students those who would not uh, get through high school. So when you have the kind of platform you now have by virtue of your success as an investor, um, do you find it easier to meet with heads of state, finance ministers, uh, heads of countries, and do you find that to be uh, appealing to do that and give them your views on these subjects? We find it mutually appealing, yes. I, I, um, I, uh, I think that you know, from my point of view, I'm very interested in the subject matter, but I'm also interested in being able to um, have an impact, being able to help. And so sometimes in policies, um, it's had a big, big effect in like ECB policy or other policies. So, so if, a, if somebody came to you and said, I'd like you to be the chairman of the Fed or the secretary of the Treasury, would you ever go into government or that's not for you? That's not for me. Today, the greatest pleasure of your life is your family, your financial success, giving away money. What do you most enjoy? No, the financial success has never been, it's an inadvertent thing that came largely because I like to play a game that if you play the game well, you get the money. But the financial success has never been uh, uh, past taking care of my family and living adequately. Uh, it's been a nice thing to have, but no. Um, for me, uh, the most important thing in terms of saving really has been relationships. Um, meaningful work and meaningful relationships. These are the most important thing. When I was on a mission to have a passion, to work with people that I like, to understand the subject well, I love my game because it forces me to understand macroeconomics of the world and to bet on it in relationship to other people. So it tests whether I have that knowledge. I love that. And I'm glad that we, I've taken it to a certain point. And then there's the things that I've savored even more than that, above all else, and with 70 years old, and is the relationships, the quality of the relationships, that sense of community. That's what I treasure m more than anything. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. And it's a terrific read, and I highly recommend it. Thanks for writing it.
Thank you for having me. That was Bridgewater Associates co-chairman and co-chief investment officer Ray Dalio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.